Rachel and worship team, that was just what we needed, right? Oh my goodness. And that prayer, God, yes, you're on the throne. I'm I'm wearing my favorite t-shirt today. It says, Jesus. That's all I want to say today. Just Jesus. Don't get me talking about another subject, right? Right? So Romans 7, Romans 7. Um, You will see in the handout, if you look at it right now, you'll see that... um, that we're doing it in bite-sized pieces. There's three bite-sized pieces this morning, and it's interesting. You might have noticed that we're doing um, doing the middle part first, and then we'll do the last part second, and then we'll do the first thing last. Uh, and why be at that? Because Romans 7 ends with that scandalous... Um, statement as Paul the great apostle is saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the bondage of death? I could not end there and say class dismissed. See you in January. (laughs) It just wouldn't work. Not, not. So we're going to take this bit by bit, bite-sized pieces, and we're going to start with Reading Romans 7, and we're going to start not actually at verse 8, but verse 7. And there's three titles this morning. Sin, sin is sneaky, sin is sticky, and sin is tricky. Most of us know that by experience. Sin is shocking is our next part, as Romans, as Paul does say, Oh, wretched man that I am. And I can imagine the Romans who had heard so much about Paul and his great reputation and how steady to the job he was, and then he says that, that's shocking. That's very shocking. But hallelujah, we're going to end with the great solution, the great solution that we all need to hear over and over and over again, that there is a solution. C.S. Lewis says that uh, God doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us, and he makes us good. He loves us first and makes us good, and that's what we need to know. So let's read Romans 7, and we'll start with verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the lost sin? And there's been a great discussion that would make you feel negative toward the law. Is it bad? We want to just throw it out? Throw the baby out with the bathwater? Certainly not, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness, selfishness, unless the law had said, don't, don't do it. But law, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me a manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. For sin taking occasion, taking occasion, that's an interesting statement, and deceived me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become sin to me? Again, certainly not. Oh, wretched man that I am. So as we, 
we get to this point of our journey in Romans, in this letter, Paul is a spiritual father. He's a warrior. He's a soul doctor. But he's also a fellow journeyer. He's not just leading us in this journey. He's walking it himself. And so, as all those things, sin is mentioned 37 times. 37 times in the book of Romans. That is more than double than any New Testament book. So in all of these roles, he knew, he knew that you and me must strategize. We must, we must know the enemy. In this case, sin. Sin is the enemy. And we must know how it defeats us. And then we must know how it defeat, how we must defeat it if we're to live. Thus far, thus far in this book, he has marched us into the courthouse. And we have been condemned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every one of us. And for most of us, we could say, got it. (laughs) I got that. Over and over again, got it now. Could we just move on to something else? Ever wonder... Ever wonder about an atheist who says, I've looked for God and I have never found God, not once, no. Well, um, it's been said that the atheist cannot find God because it's kind of like a thief looking for a, co- uh, a cop. And that's, that's, that's what it is. But when sin has confronted us, like it has been, we walked into the courthouse and were condemned. But Jesus, in this book, has thoroughly walked before the judge and before the journey and said, what's the penalty? What's the penalty? Proclaimed death. And Jesus so powerfully says, I'll take the weight upon me, and I will die. And they will be just as if they never sinned. And may it be to our dying day that grace will never seem any less than amazing, astounding, and again, almost scandalous. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ, our God, should die for me? But he did. And it's interesting. In the, in the, uh, the Gospels, in John 20, when Jesus showed up in his resurrected body and the disciples were there and, and, and uh, Thomas had doubted, doubted, doubted that Jesus could have risen from the dead. Jesus put out his hand and he said, Thomas, put your hand in my hand. Put your hand in my broken, wounded side. And that seems almost scandalous. Why would the resurrected Jesus still have those wounds to declare And I believe that they just had to get that final impact that the price was always paid and they would never forget one of those last images that they had seen of Jesus. And neither should we. It's a wonderful story. The gospel is a wonderful story. They were never to doubt it. So now in this letter, now in this letter, the Romans are reading it now. And they are living in a society that is unhinged. They are running riot. They are. 
this society. Sin wasn't done in secret. It was done in the streets, in the government, in the businesses, and in the home. It was visual sin around them. So Paul made sure that just because the Christians in that society were doing better and trying to live better, that God does not grade on the curve. And most of us have been out of school so long, we we think, well, what does that really mean? Well, it means grading on the curve, you would take everyone's test scores, and then if you did better than this guy, you would be graded higher. Well, God's saying he just doesn't do it that way. No, we're all, we are all ruined sinners. Yeah, we are. And we aren't made perfect by the law. And that's why we must get that straight. We must get that totally straight. So as we move on, Lord, I just want to pray over this, God, that you would speak to us. And there'd be something so profound as these, these verses and these words just opened up to us. That, God, that we would, we would be broken. We would be broken in a good way from false concepts so we would ever, ever, ever just lean into your grace and the power that you give to live your truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So then, so what is the picture here? Again, is the law sin? Is the law bad? Except for the law, we would not know that sin is so sticky. It's so tricky to us. All of us were toddlers at one time, and many of you are moms, and maybe you have a toddler right now. And uh, when my daughter was, was two years, she was turning two, And I was overwhelmed completely. I am quite positive that my two-year-old daughter was probably the strongest-willed child I have ever known on the planet. Absolutely. And Dobson wrote this book, The Strong-Willed Child and How to Survive the Terrible Twos. Hallelujah. I mean, I I wore out the book. It was like in shreds by the time she was three, totally. Because this is why. Toddlers are more than a handful they are strong, right? They are mobile. They are curious and they have a will. Contrary to ours most of the time. So moms spend an exhausting amount of time just keeping them alive, right? <laughs> don't don't is our favorite word. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't don't hit your brother. Don't eat dirt. And the do's, we have lots of do's. Do hold my hand in the store or crossing the street. Do eat your peas. So we feel like we're just the policemen of the world at those times. And it wears us out, totally. But this is the problem. If we don't, if we don't, that child has no training wheels. They have no boundaries, right? Right. We can't just lock them up till they're 10. We just can't, so everyone's safe, we wish. So, how do we parallel with the law? When God gave the law to the children of Israel, think about it. It was after they were freed 
from the tyranny of slavery that they had lived under for 400 years, which is generations and generations. And think about Egypt, their experience in Egypt. They were not self-willed. They could not be. They were ruled by tyranny, by taskmasters. They were not free. They were controlled. They were manipulated. They were forced to kill their own firstborn sons and secondborn sons, all of their sons, if they could get away with it, if the government could get away with it. And they were forced to build monuments and palaces to cruel kings. But as free people, their tendency when they got free from that and crossed the Red Sea was to run riot. They had a tendency for the pendulum to swing, no restraint, to be rebels, to be like um, the uh, teenager in their first year of college. We can parallel that, absolutely. So, what was a father to do? He was to give them boundaries. Not just don'ts and don'ts and don'ts, but boundaries. The law was beautiful. The law was good. It wasn't just about don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Although... A world or a nation that doesn't know that is a dangerous world. But he gave them much more than that. He gave them things like washing your hands. And little people, most people don't realize this, but in Egypt, they did not wash their hands. Not at all. And as we know, they embalmed their dead. In the embalming process, then there was much hand contact with the body as all the internal elements were taken out and a massive team would deal with that. And so the same germs that killed that person, they'd go home and cook dinner or hold their baby. So Egypt is known as a country, a nation of epidemics. Epidemics ran riot in their, in their world. So the hand-washing was a simple thing, but even to the late 1800s, the Jews were the only ones that did it. And when the epidemic swept through Europe, the Jews were on the most part. They were free from those epidemics. An amazing thing. There was beautiful things in the, in the law. If you read the book of Leviticus, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. There's other things like the Jews. When you harvest your crop, if you pick your apples in your whole orchard, leave the trees on the edges of your field. So if there's a single mom or a newcomer to town or someone that's just having a hard financial stretch of life, they could just go up to that orchard and pick all they want. It was a, it was a nation that was to never go hungry from the least to the, to the best. A whole, it was a beautiful law. Absolutely. But as we know, as time went along, that they added all kinds of nonsense to the law. And, and even the Sabbath, where G, when Jesus walked this planet, the Sabbath was not just about take a day off, don't become workaholics, worship God on this day. It was so much more. It was now a burden where you couldn't make a bowl of soup and walk across the street and give it to your sick neighbor on the Sabbath. And Jesus was constantly in trouble for healing people on the Sabbath. Oh, that would be very bad. How distorted we can make legalism 
And it's not the heart of God. Absolutely. So, in the same way, children of Israel needed the law like we need the law, don't we? We have rules and regulations of the Christian life, like don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Husbands are much safer in their house. If we wives apply that, that rule, <laughs> life is safer with everyone. If we as women don't let that anger pile up on us. And it, again, is this all bad? No. But we have the spirit to keep us under control. So, so what is about this conversation, but until the, the law came... And I realized the law, I wasn't so tempted because I didn't know it was bad to steal. I didn't know. It's about self-restraint externally. And so I'm going to show a little video about a test. It's called the Marshmallow Test. It was done in 1972. And this is what happened. Stanford did this little test with 600 children. 600 children. And what they were testing was... The law of self-restraint. Can you do it? And what happens? They followed those 600 children for 40 years to see the difference between the kids that could restrain themselves from the first marshmallow and the kids who couldn't. So let's watch it. I guarantee you that little redhead girl... She didn't fear well 40 years later. <laughs> Just joining the marshmallows. Uh, it's an interesting thing about that test is that uh, they did it a second time with another group of children. And um, they were tested uh, first with colors, giving colors that were five or six ugly little colors and a piece of paper. But said, if you wait, if you wait and don't use those colors, I'll come back with the big art set. And um, so they did half the time. Half the time they went to the children and just said, sorry, the big art set is gone. And these children that had waited didn't get rewarded. And it's an interesting thing. When they then gave them a second test with the marshmallows, the kids that didn't get rewarded and that leader did not keep their word, they would just pick up that marshmallow and just eat it. So just a little word to moms or friends or us as Christians. If we are a good example, if we keep to our word and we, we keep to our promises, we build up that confidence and trust in children and friends and whoever we're around. So um, this is a powerful thing. And what does it prove to us? Uh, Eve, Eve was tempted, uh, like that little guy with the marshmallow, and um, maybe he had never tasted a marshmallow. Eve had never tasted that piece of fruit, and the enemy said, "It's good. Trust me, it's good." I was in a house once, and there was a sign on the wall that said, "Most of life's sorrow and unhappiness." happens when we trade what we want most for what we want now. Eve traded what she wanted most 
for what she wanted at that moment. And thus with us, may we learn this lesson. And so true. So let's go on and see what else it says in this beautiful chapter. We're going to back up to the truck to, to number um, two. To Paul saying, oh, wretched man that I am. It's shocking, he says. In 14, for I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I don't practice. What I hate, that I know. Verse 18, I, I do. For I know that in me dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not know. And again, he leaves us saying, O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? And and again, as we look at this, maybe the Romans were shocked by that. Maybe they were sorely disappointed in this honest confession. But for me, for me, it just comforts my heart. And I just say, you too, Paul? You too, Paul? Because sometimes, you know, I can behave myself on the outside most of the time. I can behave myself. But sometimes I have this raging attitude, just one layer below the surface. And so I needed this little discussion, this honesty from Paul. But fortunately, we will next semester, and you have to come for it, Romans 8, because it comes out of the chute with the best news ever. There is now no condemnation to those who are in, not on the outskirts, but in Christ Jesus. And here's the qualifier. For those who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Romans 8, the spirit is mentioned 19 times. Romans, through, through the first seven chapters, it's only, the spirit's only mentioned seven times. Romans 8, we get the mother load. That is the key to our struggle, is to lean in to his Holy Spirit. And now the last part is the solution, the solution. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but the new way of living in the spirit. And so the illustration in the first part of this chapter is about the marriage relationship. But don't get lost. It's not a marriage discussion. It's just an analogy, just a picture to give us an idea. And in the lesson, what did it say? Sin is not to be our master, but the law is not our mister. Right? So let's read briefly and see what it says. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she's married to another man. 
Therefore, and this is verse 4, is almost the key to this chapter and one of the great keys to the whole New Testament. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be, what? Married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to Christ. Verse 6, you've been delivered from the law, died to what we were held by, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit. It's like my friend Thelma, she was a new, uh, a new widow, and she decided to sell her big house and move into one of those retirement communities where they have lots of uh, great activities. And so she went to the first activity uh, that they had after she moved there. And uh, there was a lot of people. And, but during the night, she kept noticing this very handsome man that was across the hall, across the meeting hall. And um, she would look over and smile and after a while, he walked across the room and he said, Ex- excuse me, do I, do I know you? And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. That must have seemed rude. But I just ca- couldn't help but thinking that you look exactly like my fourth husband. He said, fourth husband? Just how many times have you been married? She said, three. <laughs> she said, three. So that's a great picture, isn't it? I love that. But I have a better illustration that I'll close with. And this is really important. Um, My friend's uh, grandmother, my friend's grandmother, uh, was married at 15 to a a Kansas farmer. He was a hard man, a workaholic. By the time she was 21, she was married at 15. Um, By the time she was 21, she had five kids. Uh, Farm life is very hard. He was a workaholic and an alcoholic. He never gave her flowers, never gave her one birthday card, never told her he loved her all those years. But she was faithful, and she loved the Lord. Loved the Lord. Sometimes the snow is that deep. She never missed taking her kids one Sunday. Toward the end of his life, um, her her. Her youngest son, who's now a fabulous pastor, I know him well, he flew back, he now lives in California, he flew back to Kansas and led his father to the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, um, Evelyn, that's her name, um, was a glorious woman. She had the joy of the Lord. Her husband was her maker. And after he died, she did move from the farm. And she learned to dance. She never dated. She never been married. And she has the most gorgeous reputation and walk with the Lord. So let's pray. And thank you guys for hanging in there. Uh, oh, before we pray, let's close. by Stand up, if you would. And let's read this bottom piece on the handout. It's a proclamation. How then shall we live? How then shall we live? Lean in to your relationship with the Lord no matter what hard thing. It's not the law that will teach you how to live this glorious, beautiful, love-filled life. It's the Lord. So let's read it together. As someone asks about your educational background, 
boldly that the church is my college, heaven is my university, Father God is my counselor, Jesus is my principal, Holy Spirit is my teacher, angels are my classmates, Bible is my textbook, temptations are my exams, overcoming Satan is my hobby, winning souls for God is my assignment, receiving eternity is my degree, praise and worship are my slogan, if you are a child of God, God bless you. Ben Carson, raised by a single mom who loved the Lord, working two jobs. God, we just pray. Everyone put your hands out. Lord, we just pray that every, every, every molecule of the Holy Spirit would pour over this very broken, damaged world right now. And God, over us, that we wouldn't live by just thinking what the rules should be. But God, we would lean into you and beg you to fill us with your Holy Spirit every single day. That we could walk, we would walk with you as our first love. And because your love is beating in our heart, that we would be so full that we would overflow. God, we need that. The world needs that. Our children, our children need that. And so I pray that you would anoint, double anoint every one of us in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.